Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Eric Potter. Eric helps companies succeed by finding the right custom software solutions to their business problems. He has been a Microsoft MVP since 2015 and is currently Director of Technical Education at Sweetwater. Welcome, Eric. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a little more of an introduction to yourself? Um, perhaps, you know, tell them how you got started in the industry. Oh, man, I've been doing this for a while. Um, you know, got a computer science degree and uh, right out of college, took a job with a consulting firm here in Fort Wayne. Um, built a lot of custom applications in the medical space, actually, right out of college. Um, was actually originally doing Palm Pilot software, which... Sounds really old now, right? Like writing C applications for a device that ran on two AAA batteries. Um, you know, by the time I started, they weren't the newest models, but I definitely developed applications where the minimum spec was one megabyte of storage, right? If you remember the old Palm Pilots, they didn't really differentiate between RAM and, and long-term storage. And the smaller ones only had one megabyte of memory. And the screen was 160 by 160 pixels, uh, black and white, <laughs> um, which, you know, now that's, it's just unfathomable that we worked at that low resolutions in like 2003. Um, so kind of got my start there, then stayed in consulting for about 20 years, worked in a lot of different industries, um, transportation, manufacturing, uh, like I said, healthcare. And uh, most recently have taken a job at Sweetwater, which if you buy any music gear online, there's a good chance you've seen us. We are the nation's leading uh, music retailer, uh, online retailer. And I got a chance to take a job that combines my love of teaching with my love of software development. So um, really having a lot of fun there and uh, just enjoying uh, helping the development staff there level up their skills. So what does a director of technical education do uh, from like their day in, day out uh, stuff? <laughs> Good question. And it varies wildly every day, but you can think about it. I'm in charge of developer onboarding. So every time we hire a developer, it's my job to help uh, get them onboarded onto our technology stacks. We have multiple continuing education efforts so we have like a, a large monthly gathering that I coordinate. Um, we have smaller, more specific, like hands-on labs that I coordinate. And then, you know, any kind of additional learning tool like Pluralsight or whatever else that like, runs through my team. So anything, or, you know, then we have like a book club that we're starting up pretty soon. So anything that I can do to allow the technical staff to grow in their skills, whether it be something broad, like reading the pragmatic programmer as a group or something as specific as we have one team that's trying to switch from 
Objective C and uh, UI Kit to Swift and Swift UI. Right. So sometimes it's a really specific technical need that we need to upskill on, and sometimes it's more just like the general career development stuff. So do you, would you say, and I know that you've been growing, uh, I'm sure with all of the, the, you know, breadth of, and diversity of, of, uh, issue, uh, domains, problem domains that you've had to deal with and changing technology. Learning is probably a key element for you to help teach yourself. But would you say that, do you, would you say that, um, this is even more stretching for you to like be able to have to cover such a wide gamut of technologies or is that something that just you enjoy it all the more? I mean, one of the things that I've always enjoyed, especially in the consulting role was that ability to like switch from stack to stack to stack. Uh, but I will say that for most of my career, I had stayed kind of close to the .NET stack. Um, and so and there's always that evolution of there's always another tool to learn, another framework to learn. Um, and so the interesting challenge now is, is broadening out. So we're doing uh, a lot of software at Sweetwater in PHP, uh, in Go, in Swift, which are I mean, pretty good languages. Um, and you can, PHP, the older versions of PHP had some issues, but PHP 7, PHP 8, I mean, it's really getting to be a pretty good language. So I have had to broaden my skill set, and I'm learning stuff every day. But... <laughs> For me, that's fun. I mean, it's fun to kind of dig in and see some of those different communities and some of the different approaches. But I think where you're kind of going with that is just the importance of learning for a software developer. Um, I think probably the most important book I've read in my career was a book that was by the authors of Pragmatic Programmer, but it's called Pragmatic Thinking and Learning. And... You know, there's a lot of things that have changed in my career. Like I said, I started doing Palm Pilot software. And, you know, now we're doing you know, microservices and, you know, it's very different. And you just, there's just that perpetual learning. And so getting good at learning is as important a skill as a software developer can have. So, um, yeah, pragmatic thinking and learning, I think it's by Andy Hunt. It's either by Andy Hunt or Dave Thomas. And then there's another book that's much more recent called The Programmer's Brain by Felina Hermas. And both of those are focused on how you think and how you learn, how you retain information. And I just cannot recommend those books highly enough. Well, let, let's see if we can start a language holy war then. Uh, we, we were talking about <laughs> the, the vast array of programming technologies and, and language languages there at Sweetwater and, and quite frankly in the community at large. What are some of your favorites and, and what are, what do you reach for when solving a particular problem? Like I said, I've spent a lot of time in the .NET space. And so, I don't know, I, I'm probably most comfortable in those languages. And I don't want to say that I think they're better. It's just, if you're going to ask me what I'm going to reach for, that's probably where I'm going to start. Um, I also started my career in strongly typed, statically typed languages. And so as much as I've done JavaScript, I prefer TypeScript. And, you know, that is very much, it's like one of those Coke or Pepsi things. I have a hard time <laughs> making an argument for why it's better. But if you're going to ask me my opinion, you know, I prefer the warm embrace of a, of a compiler. And I like that type checking. And, you know, people can disagree with me. That's fine. And I, um, 
I've spent the most time in C-sharp because that's just where a lot of the client work has been. And I feel very comfortable with that. But if you're asking my favorite language, you know, if you ask me which stickers on my laptop, then we're going to need to get to <laughs> F-sharp. Um, F-sharp is just a beautiful little language. It's so terse. It's so expressive. It allows you to articulate algorithms in such beautiful ways that, you know, that's, that's going to be the one that uh, I really get excited about. So is there, is there a particular sort of problem set or that you, that you say, I'm going to go reach for F sharp. Uh, so, you know, what, what makes you, you know, go after F sharp? Well, let's start with kind of the fun, some of the fundamental things. Uh, and then I'll get to your question. Like, when do I, when do I really start reaching for it? I personally prefer languages that have a smaller syntax that, you know, just require less keystrokes. And F-sharp definitely has, you know, fewer keystrokes to accomplish the same amount of code. Some people don't like that. And I, I appreciate that. You know, for example, one of the things that people often reach for is the fact that F-sharp has meaningful white space. So if you come from a Python background, like you've, this is not a new concept to you. The idea of when you have a block, right? So if you have a function in a C-based language, the block is defined by you know the opening curly brace and the closing curly brace. Um, you have an if statement or a for statement or a for each statement. The block uh, inside of that expression is denoted by the curly braces. And in F-sharp, it's actually denoted by the indentation. So... If you look at a function, you want to know, well, how many of these lines are in the function? There's no curly braces. And you just look and like, okay, well, this is all indented at least one level. And so that's what's in the function. If you jump into an if statement, you know, that's a further level of indentation. And so one of the complaints about this is that, well, you know, you don't have curly braces to look at and it's just unnecessary cruft. You know, if you look at a language like C Sharp, and say, oh, you know, they have curly braces and you can do whatever you want with white space. But I forget who said this. Um, but all programming languages effectively have meaningful white space. If you don't believe me, <laughs> open, up, open up your editor and take all of your code and then uh, take all the white space out. Just like mash it up against the left side of your editor. And then... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then check it in and then see what your teammates think about it. <laughs> I'm going to reject that pull request. Just, yeah. just so you know. Yeah, yeah. So if that's, the, if that's where we are, if we insist on having that white space there, why not make it meaningful? Um, if our C-sharp code, and I agree, like if I, if I had a teammate that didn't indent a function, you know, I'd reject it as well. Um, Especially because the IDE can basically format that for you now. It's like <laughs> one key string, you know, highlight it and control shift K and you're there. Um, so if but how do you control shift K on F sharp though? How does it know? Uh, you don't. You, <laughs> uh, you have to do it yourself. But if you're going to effectively have meaningful white space in your code, then you might as well make it actually mean something. Um, and so I like that. You know, F sharp does things where, you know, the semicolons are optional. And if you don't, if it can figure out where the parentheses should go, the parentheses are optional. So you can just do a lot with very few keystrokes. And, you know, as a side note, I don't think that the keystrokes are the important part of programming. The problem solving is the important part of programming. 
but having a condensed code base just makes it easier to read. At least I like it. So, you know, that's kind of why I fell in love with F Sharp initially was just how much you could do in very few lines of code. Um, and initially, you know, when I started doing F Sharp, it had things like tuples and pattern matching that was like, oh man, this is amazing. Um, you know, and now C Sharp has those features and Swift has those features. So some of those things that used to be differentiators have made their way into some of the other languages. Um, although you could argue that pattern matching is better than F Sharp, but that's another, <laughs> that's another discussion for another day. C Sharp is working on it. Yeah. And Every release, like I, I'm not trying to dig on F sharp or on C sharp. Uh, their pattern matching gets better with every single release, um, and I'm impressed with what they're doing. Uh, you could argue that's actually one of the reasons to learn F sharp because if you learn F sharp, uh, the best features of F sharp end up making their way into C sharp anyway. Uh, async and await mm -hmm. started in F sharp, although to be fair, C sharp's implementation of async and await is actually a little bit better. That's <laughs> one of the places where um, C Sharp is better than F Sharp is their async and await implementation. So, so, so what you're saying is by waiting and staying in C Sharp, we're getting the <laughs> benefit of a, a more mature implementation? Uh, sometimes. Um, and sometimes there are reasons why some of the best features can't make it into C Sharp, right? C Sharp, the C Sharp team has said they will never break backwards compatibility. Um, and so there are some things that, you know, they can't quite do in C sharp because, um, you know, it breaks some previous feature. You know, that's a shame because go to needs to go away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I would guess, I, I don't know for sure. I would guess if you could talk to the, the C sharp team, there's a handful of things they like to throw out of C sharp. I mean, the, and the language is legitimately 20 years old now. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you remember the, do you guys remember the build conference where they announced it? I don't think I was even watching anything about build at the time. Uh, or it might've, it might've been like one of the precursors to build, but yeah. Or what, what do you know? Whatever, whatever it was back then, like, you know, it's not like they streamed it. So it, it would have been, it would have been some kind of uh, document based announcement for, for the majority of us. Yeah. That was a while ago. Yeah, but I mean, I remember when it happened. I'm, I'm sure you guys remember when it was still pretty new. And, uh, you know, I mean, to be fair, there's some things in F Sharp that I'm sure that they would go back and tweak. F Sharp is, I mean, it's not 20 years old, but it's been around for a while too. Yeah. So for, for anyone not familiar, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the, um, you know, kind of the way that F Sharp looks and the fact that a lot of F Sharp features that, uh, turn out to be really useful are being kind of dragged into or imported into C Sharp. Um, but, uh, well, and so for anybody who doesn't know, it is a .NET based language. Um, but um, I want you to get into a little bit of why F Sharp even exists, what its its niche is, you know, like why did the, why did the Microsoft teams decide to go and build this other language when they already had something like C Sharp and VB and the other things they were working on? Oh man, so let's let's do a little bit of a history lesson here, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, do you remember? I mean, well, let's let's take take this approach. Uh, when you execute code, when, like when you compile C sharp code, what's the engine called that runs it? It's well, it's common common language runtime, isn't it? Right. 
So there was this idea when .NET was new that you'd have a whole bunch of languages that would run on that platform. So common language runtime is we're going to have all these different languages, but they're all going to run on the CLR. And, you know, there have been a lot of attempts at that, right? There was Iron Ruby and Iron Python. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to, Boo was an, another one, if you remember Boo. It was more of a scripting. Oh, I heard thing. of Boo. It was early in, in .NET when, when that was like a attempt to do more of like a scripting style language on .NET. And the idea was that you would have a, a diverse set of languages that run on the .NET platform. And primarily that has not been the case, right? Most C-sharp is the dominant .NET language for good reason. But if we think about our programming language history, they're kind of classically two camps of programming languages. There are the object-oriented languages and the functional languages. And there are others, right? You, like you have logical languages like Prolog that are out there, stack-based languages like Forth that are out there. Um, uh, I guess like structured languages like C and Go and Rust. But like you think that the two big camps, object-oriented and functional, .NET has good object-oriented languages, C-sharp and VB. And so the idea with F-sharp was going to be to have a functional language that runs on the .NET, uh, .NET runtime. And I don't know that um, we can, uh, can do justice, like the pros and cons of functional programming here, but right, functional programming is the style where you think more of like defining functions in the algebra sense, right? Where you, like when you have a function in algebra, if uh, you, know, you give it the same inputs, you always get the same output. And there are some things about that that are really nice about testability, uh, about multi-threading. And so there's a place for that to happen. Functional programming is the idea where you're going to have a function and state gets passed into the function and then you have a return value. Uh, but the functions aren't necessarily stateful. Uh, Object-oriented programming is where you have this object, the store state and behavior, and the state and the behavior are very much intertwined. That's like the nickel tour. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a gross oversimplification of the difference. That's a huge topic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a whole big thing. And anyone that's listening, if if you're not familiar, I would you would be greatly rewarded by diving more into that. But the idea is that... Um, you're building these functions that uh, are very predictable in their output. And it sounds weird to say that uh, in traditional functional program or yeah, functional languages, you don't really have variables because the variables can't change their value. And if you come from a purely object-oriented background, you're like, oh man, how can I write any code if the variables don't ever change their value? But there are, there are easy ways around that. There, it's hard to explain on a podcast but you learn to write algorithms where you just don't need them. And then when you don't have state like that, then all of a sudden it becomes really easy to go multi-threaded. It becomes really easy to write unit tests. It becomes really easy uh, to compose these functions together. So there definitely are benefits and stylistic benefits to having functional, uh, functional programming language on the .NET framework. So one of the really cool things that F-sharp can also do is something that has now also kind of made it into C-sharp. Are, are you guys familiar with the idea of source generators? Yep. yep. Right? So you have a way to write code that generates code. Um, F-sharp also has that idea. It's had a little bit longer. 
But they have this really cool idea of type providers where you can generate code based on some data source. So the easiest example is a CSV file. So if I have a CSV file, what I can do is I can literally have a line of code that says, I want to type based on the data in that CSV file. And it's not a dynamic thing where it's like, oh, I'm going to read that CSV file and then I can um, you know, just dot into it. Uh, F-sharp, the F-sharp compiler will actually run to that line of code. It'll compile to that line of code and then it'll go out and read that CSV file and it'll generate um, strongly typed data structures based on the structure of that CSV file, assuming the CSV file is structured like in a table. And then you can get IntelliSense on the column names in the CSV file. Uh, you can get type checking on what's coming in and out of the CSV file. And so I mean, you can be 10 lines in to this program and all of a sudden you're working with the data in a CSV file, but you've got complete IntelliSense and all your Visual Studio tooling just works. And it's really cool. Um, and there are other type providers. The CSV one is the one I end up using the most, uh, but there are also type providers like for SQL databases, uh, for Excel documents. Um, and so the compiler itself is like generating the types. So if you think about Entity Framework, uh, you have some kind of model, right? We have code that is modeling what's in the database. With F-sharp type providers, the, the database or the CSV file or whatever it is, is the source of truth for your data structures. And the first time you see it, it's like magic. And it's simply one NuGet package away from F-sharp. It's not in F-sharp proper. Uh, you have to go out to NuGet install F-sharp.data. And so where I end up using that a lot, and this is probably actually my most common use case for F-sharp, is when I have something, you know, like some third-party application um, where I'm getting data as a CSV file and I want to either aggregate it or compile it, you know, uh, do some kind of calculation based on it. And I could open an Excel and do it that way. But a lot of times this is really easy to point my F-sharp type provider at it and start writing the code that I want. I'll give you an example. Like I said, I'm in, involved with all of the training and upskilling. And part of that is, uh, you know, providing Pluralsight licenses to my teammates. And Pluralsight has a nice um, feature where you can download CSV reports of what people are doing. And we, you know, we want to recognize people for completing courses, or sometimes we just want to know if people, how much people are really using their Pluralsight subscription so we can adjust how many licenses we have, things like that. And so it's just ridiculously easy to uh, download one of these CSV reports, fire up F-sharp, install that NuGet package, and then start doing uh, my aggregation on uh, that CSV file. And then after after you've done it the one time, I assume you can just download the next month's report or whatever and just now do it on this file? Yep, exactly. So assuming that the format of the CSV file doesn't change month after month, yeah, you just run that script over and over again. Of course, if it changed, that'd be, that'd be a problem pretty much no matter what language you were using. So Right. Now, the nice thing would be if you pointed your F-sharp type provider at the new file, now if like they change the column name, that would suddenly be a compiler error, right? So you now get IntelliSense that says like, okay, this column name's invalid. Right. So if you ran the if you ran the pre-compiled 
program against the CSV and it blew up, to fix it is as easy as just opening it up in the editor, letting IntelliSense or the compiler check it, and then it'd be like, oh yeah, that field doesn't exist anymore. And then you could look for the adjusted field name or whatever it was. Exactly. That Which would be a lot easier than like say C-sharp, where you'd have to open the CSV and then go through everything that was in the CSV to find what maybe might have changed. Yep. Not having any clue what it was that actually broke. That'd be pretty cool. What's the testing story like with F-sharp these days? So if you're just going to talk about unit testing, I mean, it's a .NET platform, right? So if um, you, can com- you can compile it, and if you like MS-test or XUnit or NUnit, certainly you can write all your unit tests with uh, one of those frameworks. Uh, there's another library that uh, is more like a, it's kind of more like a, a linter. Uh, it's called FS check that will look for stuff. One of the things that I actually really love with F sharp, and this is not necessarily testing the F sharp code as much as it is using F sharp to test something else. Um, but there is a web testing framework called canopy that I am absolutely in love with. If you guys are familiar with Selenium, Selenium is a Java-based tool that allows you to write scripts to uh, basically automate web interactions. It uses a browser plugin. So when you click something with Selenium, your the web page sees it as if the user were seeing it. You know, it's coming in, it's interacting with the DOM exactly the same way the user would. And the Selenium engine, which I believe is still maintained by Google, is very powerful and it allows a lot of things to happen, but it's very verbose. It's a very Java API. And so, you know, to click on something, you have to like do a find and you get this object back and then uh, then you have to click on the object and then await the result. But with Canopy, all of a sudden, uh, literally, it's just the function click and then a string for the selector. Um, And then that uh, returns the action, it returns the DOM element. And so when I'm creating automated end-to-end tests for my web applications, you know, I want to get it done quickly because I'm not providing business value by writing end-to-end tests. I just, you know, I want to get them done. I want to be right. And so this is one of the places where I think F-sharp really shines because it's one of the places where you can generate a lot of functionality with very few lines of code, which means that you can generate the tests really quickly. You can validate your website really quickly and get on to implementing the next feature. And again, that's, that's a NuGet package, right? So you're just one NuGet package away from having that. You just create an F-sharp console application uh, install the Canopy NuGet package, and you know you're off and running. The documentation for Canopy is, is pretty good. Um, if there's if I have any quibble with uh, the website, it's that the author, uh, a guy named Chris Holt, his GitHub handle is Left Handed Goat, uh, <laughs> and so you know I've been in conference rooms of Fortune 100 companies. I'm like, no, the library we need to use in your application is from this guy named Left-Handed Goat. Um, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> that can be a little bit of a tough sell. But uh, the library itself is great. One of the other things I love about 
canopy is that as much as I love F sharp, I've never actually built an application with it for a customer. Customers usually want to have their main business applications written in a language where they feel like they can hire developers. Uh, to be fair, um, if you're creating a line of business app, you're going to have an easier time hiring a C-sharp developer than you will an F-sharp developer. So mm. I understand the business driver there to uh, allow applications to be built in in, in C-sharp. Um, and so I've definitely you know, been on sales calls where I pitched us building the application in F-sharp and, um, and that idea was turned out, which mm-hmm. is fine. But then on multiple occasions, I've come into clients and said, hey, I think we should do our automated end-to-end testing in F-sharp. And they're like, well, what do we do our automated end-to-end testing in right now? Like, well, you don't do any. (laughs) They're like, oh, yeah, well, we should definitely do that. And so then all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, because it's the test code and not the, you know, the the line of business application, then they don't have any qualms about it being in F-sharp. So honestly, about test code. <laughs> you know, and uh, say what you want about it. Um, uh, Ash is I, fired after this episode, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to tell the truth, like we've we've run this experiment multiple times where we've had interns or new hires added to a project, and we show them the canopy code, and like, well, I've never written F sharp. I'm like, well, don't worry. By the end of the afternoon, I will have taught you enough F sharp to to write canopy. Um, and you know, we've seen repeatedly that, um, that you can take a developer and get them up to speed on F-sharp pretty quickly, especially when you're like narrowing the domain down to automated end-to-end testing. Trying to get someone up to speed, what is that uh, process like, uh, you know, taking a C-sharp object-oriented uh, developer and learning something like F-sharp, maybe it sounds like, you know, limiting the scope to, you know, a testing framework might be a good introduction. But uh, what what do you think is a is a good way, good route for someone to go? So there are a handful of things um, they need to know out of the gate that are just simple translations, right? So C-sharp has using statements. F-sharp has open statements. They're the same. Um, C-sharp has curly braces. F-sharp has meaningful white space, but it's the same idea. Um, C-sharp requires semicolons, F-sharp doesn't. All right, so you have like a handful of those things where really quickly you can be like, okay, this is what you do in C-sharp this week. One of the things that is nice about, especially automated end-to-end testing, is that even when you write your automated end-to-end tests in Java or C-sharp or JavaScript, uh, everything's pretty immutable. You know, you're not... Like some some of those algorithmic changes that you would need to, um, you know, do like uh, a list traversal instead of a for loop uh, that you would need in other places for functional languages. Like in an end to end test, you're basically just asserting, a, you know, performing an action and asserting the result, and that fits the functional paradigm really well. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why maybe it's a little easier for someone to come up to speed uh, with end to end testing. And honestly, I think the other thing is that, you know, you're in an editor that they're very familiar with. So if you have a C-sharp developer that's used to Visual Studio, you're still in Visual Studio. Most of the commands are the same. Um, If you're a C-sharp developer that likes Visual Studio code, 
Um, there's an F-sharp plugin for Visual Studio Code. Uh, Writer, if you're a Writer developer, supports F-sharp. So um, you can generally be in the IDEs that you're used to and still be in F-sharp. If you're a team that say maybe you, you're you're working in both, or you have well, you already have the skill set, um, and sounds like you could generate the skill set pretty sim- pretty pretty quickly. Um, when do you select F sharp over C sharp? Do you just do every everything in F sharp, or is there some things that C sharp is going to be better for? Uh, so this is going to be one of those things that's kind of controversial. Um, <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> am I hired back on, John? <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Like there are definitely people in the F sharp community that want to do the entire app in F sharp and would argue that that's the right way to do it. Right. There are, um, uh, web frameworks that are purely in F sharp. Um, so if you're doing a web app, you can do the entire backend in F sharp and that's fine. Um, you can find examples online of people doing, uh, Maui or, um, Xamarin forms or WPF or even WinForms, like you can do that in F sharp. Uh, I don't know that that would be my choice. Um, and then there's also, there's a compiler called Fable, which is uh, compiling F sharp to JavaScript. So conceivably you could have a web application that is F sharp in the browser. I mean, F sharp transpiled to JavaScript and then F sharp in the backend. So, I mean, you could conceivably do, an entire application in F-sharp. And if you Google it, you'll find people that advocate for that. More power to them. Um, <laughs> my experience has been that there are some things that map more easily to an object-oriented paradigm. Um, I think desktop apps are a great example of that. Desktop apps are, by nature, very stateful. And so I personally would probably never choose to do a desktop app or a mobile app uh, purely in F-sharp. But again... Yeah, F-sharp compiles to MSIL, so does C-sharp. So you have very seamless integration between the two. So if you're doing a, desk, uh, a MAUI app, you could do all of your UI in C-sharp and then have a class library that maybe does your you know, heavier processing, maybe your more CPU-intensive stuff. And you could do that all in F-sharp. So you could mix and match them that way and be no problem. Um, in the same way... Uh, I would argue that for a lot of things, any framework with C-sharp is the nicer bit. So I would probably always do my data access layer in C-sharp. But again, you can mix and match you know, where you have a class library for your computations. It's all in F-sharp and it'd be, be beautiful. Actually, that makes me wonder about something. So entity framework is mostly designed for F sharp using the, you know, link to EF. Uh, in F sharp, you had mentioned the type providers and you had mentioned type providers to SQL. But in a production environment, the way that you normally like put publish uh, changes to the app is you would go and you would make changes to the database first, then deploy changes to the app. Um, and certainly there are ways to do that without without doing breaking changes, but a lot of people don't necessarily do that. Uh, does that become a big problem if you're using the type providers, or is it just a matter of process and you just follow the process and everything's fine? So, I mean, you're hitting on, on one of the pain points with type providers is that the, uh, the compile time performance 
with the SQL type provider is, is not great. Uh, like I said, you start the compilation process when, when you hit the line of code that has a type provider in it, then the type provider is going to execute code and go out and generate types. Which means if you're using the SQL type provider in the middle of your compilation process, it's going to go make SQL calls. That doesn't do good things for your compiled performance. <laughs> right? There, so there is a benefit. Like one of the nice things about Entity Framework is that, especially if you're doing uh, you know, code first, right? Your database model is already in code. So your compile time is a lot better. So I guess I would say for the niche cases where you need to do like some kind of ETL transaction, like I just need to go in here, I need to grab some data out of this database. You know, I'm gonna do one time transform, I'm gonna generate a report, I'm gonna do generate a file, I'm gonna, you know, do one a one-time transformation. Then F sharp with the SQL type provider would be great. But on a full-fledged application, you would probably want to use entity. Okay. Good question though. It feels to me like the middle ooey gooey bits are great with F sharp and the edges that you're touching, the UI, the data endpoints, like all of those things might be lending themselves more to that. You know, anytime you're dealing with that stateful transaction or having understanding that state, C sharp might be the better. Yeah, and I think I think as an industry, we're getting better patterns for doing functional. Uh, user interfaces, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could argue that React is very functional. Like this idea that instead of mutating state, uh, every time we change the UI, we're just going to generate a whole new UI object. Right? That's that's a very functional idea. Um, a Swift UI follows a very similar pattern. Um, Elm, if you're familiar with the Elm language and framework, like Elm follows that a very uh, similar pattern. And so it is kind of a different way to think about the world. Uh, I don't know that everyone loves it. I think it's one of, it'll be one of those interesting things to see out in the next five years what the industry kind of goes with. I thought it was really interesting that Swift or that Apple went with a much more functional UI library with Swift UI. And it'd just be interesting to see how that, how that grows or fades in popularity. But I agree, like... I've not spent a, it's not been a, like a strong desire of mine to do UI stuff in F sharp. So what else, what have we maybe glossed over or, or missed in our conversation about all that is F sharp? And I know we've, we've probably only scratched the surface and, and hopefully uh, made, made people eager to go and, and learn more about F sharp, but, but what, what do you want to be sure to communicate in the podcast before we start wrapping up? All right, so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out another tool, and this is kind of going to go in a different direction, uh, but you'll see why here in a second. Uh, I mentioned that Visual Studio Code has a plugin called Ionide that allows you to do F-Sharp development in Visual Studio Code. Um, and, and it's a beautiful little tool in and, of its, uh, in and of itself. But there is a further tool called .NET Interactive Notebooks. It is a plugin for... Visual Studio Code that allows you to create these notebooks that allow you to intermix Markdown and executable code. So again, if you're from the Python space and you've worked with Jupyter Notebooks, this is the same idea. In fact, the .NET Interactive Notebooks Visual Studio Code extension 
takes a dependency on the Jupyter uh, Visual Studio Code extension. But now what you can do is you have this really fascinating way you know, to like have 10 lines of code and you can just execute those lines of code and see what the output is. Um, and I should say, this is not an F-sharp only thing. Like you can have C-sharp notebooks, you can have JavaScript notebooks all in .NET Interactive notebooks. But it's this beautiful way to kind of mix a description of what's going to happen and then code that is both executable and editable right in that plugin. And then let's say you query a database and you're pulling back 30 rows. Uh, you can actually have a graphical display, like a graphical tabular display of those 30 rows right in the notebook. Um, and so if you've never played around this, I really encourage you to uh, go check it out. It's right in the Visual Studio Extension Gallery. And um, you know, just a, a really fascinating way to kind of think about that intersection of documentation and executable code. Yeah, no, that um, that's pretty cool. What are some resources you could point our listeners to who would really like to get started with F Sharp? Uh, um, I think the one that people generally find pretty quickly online. There's a website called F Sharp for Fun or Profit um, uh, by a guy named Scott Vlashen. and um, that uh, that website has a great a description of a lot of the elementary concepts, but uh, there are pages in there that go really deep. Um, uh, there are a couple really good books out there on F-Sharp. Um, I know Dave Fancher has a book on F-Sharp that was really helpful to me. Um, there's a newer one called Stylish F-Sharp that I hear really good things about. Um, and just in general, the F-Sharp community is uh, very active online. Um, the open source projects are very active and very well supported. So yeah, check out some of the things that the F-Sharp Foundation is doing. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those maybe looking to level up their own careers? Uh, I would say, um, and this circles back around to kind of where we were at the beginning of the podcast, but just learning how you learn. You know, what is, what is the best way for you to learn a new technology? You know, I think there are a lot of great video tutorials out there. Uh, there are a lot of great podcasts out there. And, you know, I would encourage anyone to, you know, kind of be constantly consuming some kind of feed of, um, you know, new things because there's always going to be another thing. You know, one of the great things about our industry for young developers is that you know, there's older guys like me that know a lot about a lot of older stuff, but my knowledge of Palm Pilot programming is pretty meaningless. And so I can have younger teammates that invest a couple of weeks really learning something like React Native or Svelte. And all of a sudden they know more than me about it. And so when you have younger teammates, and I always encourage my younger teammates, like, man, just, you know, kind of watch where the industry is going, you know, pick something and, and get into it. And there's always going to be an opportunity for you to become the expert on some technology or some tool. And, you know, there's times, you know, I'm, you know, I've got some miles on the tires, but there's tons of stuff that I have teammates 
uh, you know, just out of boot camp, just out of college, and they know more than me. And so that that willingness to kind of learn how to learn to uh, you know watch trends and kind of get excited about a technology and really learn it deeply can be a huge benefit. Um, I think one of the things that took me a little bit to learn was like finding that right balance between like what do I need to read, what do I need to listen to, what do I need to watch, and then like when do I just need to sit down and start coding? Um, you know, because at some level, the best way to learn something is to say, okay, like I, I just need to like pick a pet project and go build something. Um, I hope that people enjoy listening to this episode about F sharp, but it won't do a lot for you until you sit down and, and try and write some F sharp. So, you know, if you listen to this right now, uh, you know, when you're done listening, go pop up in visual studio or visual studio code and Try and write some F sharp. See how far you can get. Um, it's not just F sharp, right? Like, there, like I said, there's new web frameworks coming out all the time, new tools coming all the time. You know, just carve out some time and go try and build something. So, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Uh, the easiest place to find me online is on Twitter. I am at Potter Eric. Um, I'm also reasonably active on LinkedIn, um, so I'm. Uh, Eric Potter on LinkedIn. I'm the one that works for Sweetwater. There are a bunch of them. Um, uh, you can find my blog at humbletoolsmith.com uh, where I, you know, I've got some F sharp stuff up there. I've got a bunch of C sharp and TypeScript stuff up there as well. And I don't know, some silly stuff up there as well. All right, Eric, thanks so much for joining us tonight. This has been absolutely a blast. Really appreciate you taking the time to share everything about F sharp with us. Awesome. Thanks for giving me the chance. That was Eric Potter. Eric helps companies succeed by finding the right custom software solutions to their business problems. He has been a Microsoft MVP since 2015 and is currently Director of Technical Education at Sweetwater. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Ah!